We've been looking at the uh, vision statements that we considered a number of years ago, but revisiting them. And we looked at how we want to be a local church that is God-glorifying. And uh, this morning we're looking at how we desire before God to be a church that is Christ-centered. That meaning that Jesus Christ has the first place in everything that we do. And if Jesus Christ is not at the heart of what is taking place here, then there is a fundamental problem. You see, to be God-glorifying also means to be centered on the Lord Jesus. You know, you think of how Paul wrote when he wrote that letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so despite being a man of exceptional ability, his whole purpose was that the Lord Jesus Christ be the center of his life, the center of his message and his mission. Whatever else he knew, whatever else he wanted to communicate, all was in relation to Jesus Christ, him crucified the gospel. Interestingly, a writer from many, many years ago, John Owen, was a Puritan, describes a, a Christ-centered local church, and he said this, It is a state where the worship of God is celebrated in the way and manner by him appointed, and which is to be ruled by the power which he gives it, and according to the discipline which he has ordained. In other words, it is the Lord's work, and it should be undertaken in the way that he has set forth in his word. Now, friends, these are are not easy days for the church of Jesus Christ. We know that many are finding things hard. There seems to be little progress. And so the temptation then becomes to look for answers to that in the wrong place. And often churches can focus on externals rather than recognizing that many of the challenges are deeply spiritual. Many think if you just tweak things on the surface, then it will be so different. But it's, it's really such a, a superficial understanding as to why the state, the spiritual state of our land is in such decline. It's not just externals. Churches often face decline because generally our country and to some extent the church is knowing something of the judgment of God for its sin. And so the solution isn't just externals, although we must always examine ourselves to reform and to be genuine and welcoming and approachable. But we've got to be realistic. And as the Scriptures tell us, it's not as though people around us are just thirsting for God. And we are missing that. There'll be no deep change, no ultimate change, until God is pleased to move by the power of His Spirit. And He is able to move. He is able to move today as much as any day. And we mustn't lose heart. And what we need, dear friends, as a local church, is a vision beyond just wanting to see pews filled. We need a shared vision that unites us in seeking the Lord, in being willing to risk for the gospel, and that is serious about the glory of Jesus Christ. And part of that vision was to remind ourselves of the greatness and glory of God, but also now to be centered on Jesus Christ. Friends, the need around us is so great. 
And we need to love people enough to meet them where they are and to bring them and point them to the truth of the Lord Jesus, that he alone is who they need, that he alone brings eternal life and salvation. And the truth is not being heard by the majority of people around us. But it's not because the message is not available, it is. You know, people are just not interested because they have no awareness of their deep need. They are blinded by the God of this world and all his ways and the ways that he keeps them from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our society, a secular society, doesn't believe in God. Or if there are those who would entertain the idea of a God, think that he's irrelevant to them. People are focused on living only for this life for pleasure, for things, and with an attitude that says, well, there's no absolute truth outside of themselves. And all of those factors together cause very hard hearts, and it needs God to break in. But be encouraged, because even though the scene is difficult, as we have said before, we must not think that there is nothing that we as the Lord's people under his hand can do. There is so much that we can do. So much that the Lord calls us to do, to be faithful even in these days. So how do we consider this idea of being a Christ-centered church? Well, we need to understand that the church, this local church, belongs to Jesus. It is his, it is not us. The Lord Jesus is the head, he is the foundation, he is the owner, he is the keeper, he is the builder, he is the indweller of the church. This is his church. And he has promised, Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So he will be at work in his way. And so it is his church bought with his own blood. He will build it and nothing can stop that. And that purpose works its way out into local churches like ourselves. And so the church is to be shaped by him in accordance with his design and his word. And we must never forget that. But the days are challenging, and we need to be encouraged. And that's why this morning I wanted to spend just a few moments in Revelation 3 before then looking at some other principles. And so do have that open in front of you. And what we have here is an encouragement, really, for a, for a small church. You see, the Lord Jesus is encouraging this church at Philadelphia. And we would say that it's a small church because if you look at verse 8, he says, for you have a little strength. So it seems as though they're, they're together and they're small. And the Lord Jesus is encouraging them. Now, unlike many of the other seven letters to the churches, what marks this letter out to the church at Philadelphia is that it is full of encouragement and commendation. And so the Lord Jesus commends them and longs for them to press on, to keep going. And how does he do it? Well, he begins by reminding him then that he is the sovereign head, that he is the one who is in control. And you see that in verses 7 onwards. Friends, if we're discouraged, and maybe when we feel our weakness as a local body of the Lord's people, the temptation is to begin to look inward and to look to ourselves. And, you know, that, that isn't helpful. But the Lord Jesus, what he does with this church here at Philadelphia, he makes them look to him to keep their eyes upon him. 
And being Christ-centered is to keep him in view, to have our eyes set upon him. And, you know, he explains much about himself in these opening verses of this passage. He says that he is the Holy One. Now, in the Jewish understanding, the Holy One referred to God himself. So Jesus is saying that he is the, the Holy One of God, that he is the true Messiah, that he is the great Deliverer. And then he says that he is the true one, the one who is true. And so we can know that Jesus is truth, that he is the genuine Christ, that he is the one who is faithful in all his dealings. Do you know something in a world that is full of lies and deception and error and falsehood and corruption? This little church of Philadelphia and us can know that Jesus is the absolute truth that he is the proper object of our trust, our worship, and our devotion. We can have confidence in him. And then he says that he's the one who holds the keys of David. It's a really interesting uh, reference. It shows that the Lord Jesus has total control and authority over the kingdom. Now, you'll notice there that there's a quote, and the quote is from, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 22, and it's speaking of a man called Eliakim, who was appointed to be steward over King Hezekiah's household. And the steward would have authority to set things in order, and no one would be admitted into the king's presence without the permission of Eliakim. And so it says in that passage, So he shall open, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. And here in Revelation 3, that picture is applied to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, because he holds the keys. He is the only one who can admit sinners into fellowship with the Father. Do you remember what he said, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he says to this little church, he says, I am sovereign, and I have absolute power to control entrance into and service within the heavenly kingdom. And you know, as he goes on, you see that this theme of Christ's authority continues. Look at verse 9. These believers at Philadelphia, they've been isolated. They've been thrown out of the synagogue. But Jesus reminds them that all power on heaven and earth has been given to him. Now, why does that matter? Well, it means that it does not matter what others think. It is what Jesus thinks of us that really matters. And when we grasp that, when we understand that, we will be Christ-centered because we won't be wanting to please man, but to please him. And he is the undisputed head of the church. He's the undisputed head of this church. And that's the glory of it. This is his work, not ours. He's the head. He's the owner. Not the pastor, not the officers, not the members. It belongs to him. And we must never forget that. And so he encourages them. And he says, I am sovereign. And then he also sets before them an open door of opportunity. Look at verse 8. This little church in Philadelphia, they've been faithful to keep close to the word of God and to the name of the Savior. They are the Lord's people, 
And so the Lord speaks to them of an open door of service, and he's encouraging them to go forward with the gospel. The open door is in front of them, but it seems as though they were, they were holding back. And you say, well, why would they hold back? Well, we're told, and there are some reasons why. Look at verses 8 through 10. The first thing that sort of makes them a little bit hesitant is weakness. They had little strength, it says. You know, maybe they're asking themselves, well, what can we do? What can we do with, with so few workers and with so few resources? But Jesus still says, go forward with the gospel. He says that he has all authority and he promises that as they seek to take those opportunities, he will provide for them with his limitless power. He will give them what they need. And so even though they may feel weak, they are to press on. And so it is for us, friends. You know, we could probably come up with many reasons to hold back. But Jesus encourages us to step forward. You know, he loves to use the unlikely. We've seen that in recent weeks. He is with us. And this little church in Philadelphia had been faithful to the gospel, faithful to the Savior, and he promised to be faithful to them. And so they were, and so we must be. And we must go on to press on. So their weakness might have been a hesitation, but Jesus says, I am with you, I will give you what you need. Another problem which might not have seen them stepping forward as they should have done may well have been doubt. Look at verse 9. They were despised in their locality, particularly by other religious groups. It seems that they had been told probably things like, well, God can't use you. God doesn't love you. God can't bless you. You're so weak. God isn't working in your fellowship. You know, we heard those things many times, haven't we? And such things, you know, they can demoralize us. They can cause us to doubt. And Satan is very effective at using those things. And the danger is that a, a smaller church can begin to think that these things are true. And it can cast dark clouds. But verse 9, look at what Jesus says. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before you and to know that I have loved you. That's a wonderful expression. We might feel downcast at times, but we need to remind ourselves that whatever anyone else might say, if we are seeking honestly to love Christ and to obey Christ, and to be faithful to him, then he loves us, and he's with us, and he will vindicate us. So doubt needed to be overcome. But then also fear. You know, when we are weak, we can become fearful. And throughout Revelation, you know probably that opposition and trouble are gathering to a terrible climax, and all of those threats of falsehood and worldliness and destroyers and, you know, when we see the opposition around us, you know, we can be afraid and we can be tempted to hide, to run for cover. But Jesus encourages this small church of Philadelphia and us to go on doing what he has called us to do. And he does so with a promise. Look at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, 
I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And so we have to use what he has given to us and he promises that if we serve him, he will uphold us, he will keep us until our work is done and then he will take us home to be with him. And so the door of gospel opportunity is open before us, just as it was the church of Philadelphia and the same head of the church of Philadelphia is the head of this church, Jesus Christ the sovereign one, the holy one, the true one, the one who holds the keys. And so with that in mind, what will a faithful Christ-centered church like that look like? What will it look like? What will be some of the, the characteristics of it? Well, we could spend, you know, many uh, times looking at how many things we could draw from the scriptures, but just a few this morning. And so I'd like, if you would, to turn back to the beginning of Acts and we're just going to pull out some of the great principles from the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts 2 onwards. And so the scriptures, they are full of enduring principles and patterns which show us what the Lord Jesus desires for his people, the church. And that's certainly true in Acts. The church is established where there is ministry and life and witness set in place. And so to be a Christ-centered church is not only to keep our eyes focused on Jesus but to be willing and committed to obeying his commandments and his principles as revealed in the scripture. He has designed the way for his work to go on. And so surely if we love him, we want to do his work his way so that we don't forfeit our usefulness or not bring him the glory that he deserves. You know, friends, it's easy to build a church of tears. It's easy to get a crowd. Many do. You can access so much material which gives you all the secrets to gathering a crowd and a big group like that. But there is only one way to build the true church, a church of wheat, Christ-centered, and that is in his word. And friends, whether I continue here or not, as your pastor or not, now or in the future, the foundation of this church must ever be the word of God. It must be central Jesus has revealed how he wants his church to be and it's all here in this book and it is clear the question is whether we are willing to submit to that and whether we want to be a church that Christ is building. And so see what takes place in this amazing uh, period where the church is set in place. In Acts 2 verses 38 to 39 there is a proclamation of the gospel. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the call goes out. The gospel is preached. And by God's grace, the call is effectual according to his purposes. So there are those who hear and they believe. The Spirit of God takes the truth of the gospel and applies it and gives to men and women new life in the Lord Jesus. And so in Acts 2, it is incredible, they begin the day with 120 meeting for prayer. And as the Spirit of God is poured out, the gospel is preached, 3,000 are saved and added to the church. So 120 in the morning, 3,120 in the afternoon. That's quite incredible. And then they continue in the days that follow, praising God, having favor with the people, the Lord adding to them daily those who should be saved. And what did they do? 
Well, they continued in teaching the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, the breaking of bread, in prayer, in seeking to be a practical help to one another, being knit together, and always continuing to proclaim the gospel. And so it goes on. Acts 4, verse 4. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And so in addition to the men, you've also got women being saved. And so in a matter of weeks, as you enter into the beginning part of Acts, you have around 20,000. 20,000. And Acts 4, by the way, has the last specific number. After that, the growth just explodes and it is rapid. And it continues throughout the following chapters. And if you were to read through, you'd find phrases like, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In Acts 12, the word of God grew and multiplied. Acts 16, so the churches in Israel and in the Gentile world were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And so you had this, this number saved, and then they are spread out to establish churches to preach the gospel. Even in Acts 19, in Ephesus, the word of God is growing mightily and prevailing. And then in the very last chapter of Acts, the gospel is at work throughout the Mediterranean world, even in Rome. And so you have this wonderful explosion of gospel work, churches being planted, the gospel being proclaimed. And what marked them out? Well, these Christ-centered churches, these Christ-centered churches were proclaiming a Christ-centered message. And that must always be what marks us here. Faced with a, a world full of tribal differences and traditions and local practices and idols and false religions and distinctions and varying languages and education levels, what did the early church preach? They had one message. The challenges for the early church of reaching such a, a hostile and diverse world were massive. And they didn't have the aid of the technology that we've got now. You know, if they had tried to shape themselves for every possible group, they would never have got beyond the first few towns. But they preached the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is a message that can transcend all boundaries, all limitations. Jesus Christ and him crucified, the gospel of God, the power of God unto salvation. And a Christ-centered church will unashamedly proclaim that very same message even in this 21st century. Sometimes we can lose sight of the fact that people are still sinners and they still need a Savior. That's you this morning. If you've not trusted Jesus Christ, you need to believe. You need to repent and be saved. To be rescued by Jesus Christ and reconciled to God. In a measure, all the other stuff is externals. You know, you think, by the way, at Pentecost. When Peter preached, what does it say about the crowd that he preached to? Verses 7 to 11 of Acts 2. 
they said, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. By God's grace, they heard the same transcendent message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it was in the early church, whether it was to those who knew something of the Bible, to those who knew nothing of the Bible, from slaves to aristocracy, from bond to free, from Jew to Greek, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified was front and center. It was always the word of the Lord and the word of the gospel. And friends, we need to be a Christ-centered church to have confidence in that message to save. And it can, by God's grace, the same message that can save a Muslim in Iran or an atheist in Europe, whatever it may be, can save sinners in Penzance too. The gospel of God is not bound. And that is what we must proclaim. A Christ-centered church will proclaim a Christ-centered message. But also what we see in this early church and the way in which it grew is that a Christ-centered church is made up of a Christ-knowing people. You see, a local church is a committed group of believers, those who know Jesus for themselves. Those who are covenanted together, that means committed to one another, knit together, submitted together for the glory of God to worship and witness in a particular place. Now, a church is not a building. It is not just a random collection of believers. It is a people together in Christ in a particular place to serve him. And in Acts 2.41, it speaks about how those who gladly received his word were baptized. And so you have those who believe and they're baptized, that public profession, followed by obeying the command of the Lord Jesus to be baptized. And as we know, the picture of baptism, the the ordinance of baptism, it pictures the, the spiritual change that has taken place. Death to the old life, dying with Christ, and being brought to new resurrection life in him. And so this was taking place. The pattern is very simple. Believe, be baptized, be added to the church. It says in verse 44 of Acts 2, all who believed were together. There were not some who said, well, I believe, but you know, I'm just going to do this. They were together. They were knit together, bound together. There's a beautiful unity in Christ and togetherness which marked them out. Later on in Acts 4, verse 31, you see how they were praying together. It says, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, we've said it before, say it again. This pandemic has been such a, a massive, massive problem for that idea of being together. And people have lost the idea of how important it is to actually be together. It's the emphasis in the first part of the New Testament, uh, in the Acts and the establishing of the church. 
And as they're together and they, they worship together, they're praying together, they're around together, they begin to speak the word of God with boldness together. Again, Acts 4.32, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. It is good for us to be together. A people who love Christ, who love each other, committed to each other in worship and life together. And you know, it's so otherworldly. It exalts the Lord Jesus and his power to save. It is not something that we can whip up. It is not something that man can do. It is what God does in the midst. And so a Christ-centered church will be made up of Christ-knowing people. And a Christ-centered church will also endure like Jesus. You know, a local church that is Christ-centered will be concerned with pleasing him, not seeking the world's applause. You know, the early believers in Acts 2, like them, we should want to be a people who are marked by gladness, simplicity of heart, praising God with a good reputation amongst the people. We should want the reality of our walk with the Lord Jesus to be seen by the people around us. And there is something appealing about that, that reality, that, that closeness, that fellowship in a Christ-centered church. It often says, you read through Acts, that the people were in awe of what they saw among these believers. The power of God, the way lives were being changed, that it was a community full of hope and joy and love and genuine fellowship and sacrifice and humility. So different from the world. But you know, at the same time, closeness to Jesus will bring opposition from the world because the world hates him and hates the gospel and hates his people. They resent the truth. And the message that we preach, Jesus Christ and him crucified, is as offensive as it has ever been. And so even though the church was growing, opposition was not far behind. But it didn't change. The message didn't change. Repent and be converted. And so there's a tension, and we will need to endure that in these difficult days, to endure like the Lord Jesus. And in this hostile world, we are stronger when we are together, and to show the love of Christ in our midst, but also to face the opposition from outside. And the early church shows us that even though days may be dark and difficult, and though persecution may come, it will not stop Jesus accomplishing his purposes for the church. Because the church doesn't grow by human sort of cleverness. It grows by the power of God, through the purposes of God. And so a Christ-centered church will endure. And then a Christ-centered church will also be serious about purity. You know, even for the early church, the danger was that the world would creep in, that sin would be embraced, and it would ruin. And very early, the Lord sets down a marker that he is serious about the purity of the church. The Lord Jesus wants to present his bride one day as, as spotless and holy, and he longs to see that taking place now. And so sin has to be dealt with. You know, Acts 5 you remember the church had grown so much, all the believers are together, many have been saved and they come from all over and now they needed to stay where the church was at this point. And so there is this remarkable provision between believers, selling what they had, distributing it amongst those in need. 
Now, as this is happening, there is a couple called Ananias and Sapphira. And they think, well, we should contribute to this. But when it comes to it, they just couldn't give what they said they were going to give and wanted to keep some back. And they act deceitfully. They lie to the Holy Spirit. And when Ananias comes before Peter, he is exposed. And Peter says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And so they're exposed and eventually immediate judgment comes to both of them and both die. And great fear comes upon the church and all who heard because God takes the holiness of his people seriously. And you might think, well, you know, that's really going to put people off. You know, that's really going to be a hindrance to any gospel growth. But it says in that same passage, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. The Lord desires the holiness and the godliness of the church, and that never prevents genuine growth. It gives lasting growth. His work, his way. And then as we draw together to a finish, a Christ-centered church will also have a Christ-honoring leadership. The early church as they formulated and as they grew and as churches were planted, were to appoint spiritual men to lead like the master they served. That's why you find in Acts 6, it says, and this issue arises, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so an issue had arisen in the church, it needed godly leadership, and so the church was to set aside those that they recognized as being men of God. And it says that these were appointed, and as Christ-like leaders prayed and preached and served, it says that the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. You know, many churches appoint leaders for the wrong reasons and not according to biblical requirements. And sometimes when a church is small, pressure can be put on to put people in place to fill the gap, maybe because they've got admirable worldly skills, but they are not fit for the spiritual role. We need those who are full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of wisdom, with good reputations, godly men, walking with Jesus to be leaders in the local church. And we should be praying for that. A Christ-centered church will have a Christ-like leadership. So the message, the togetherness, that reality, the purity, the leadership, all of these things will mark out a Christ-centered church. And friends, we need to be faithful in the day. And to encourage you as we finish... Just turn back to Revelation 3. The Lord Jesus gives these wonderful promises to the little church that seeks to be faithful to him and that pursues these things. You know, as they are to step out and serve the Lord, he says that they will receive an eternal reward. You know, seeking to be Christ-centered in these days is not easy, but it never has been. It can be tempting to give up. But the Lord Jesus says, look at verse 11 of Revelation 3. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. The crown awaits all those who love the Lord and keep going in serving him. It's not easy, but now is not the time to give up. 
As one says, those who have been belittled and troubled and sneered at on earth in the cause of Christ will be rewarded in heaven. Jesus says, keep on keeping on. Some of us have heard that phrase many times in this building. There is a wonderful future, a great reward. And also he says there is great joy in serving him. Serving Christ brings joy to our hearts that we can be useful to the Lord of the universe. What a privilege that God pleases to use us. But that service can be costly. What does he say then? Look at verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And so, yes, as we serve the Lord, there are many battles, many troubles, many insecurities. But what a promise. Think about it. A pillar in a temple, that's essential because it holds up the roof. Sometimes we can think that our service is unimportant. But the Lord is saying here that he sees and even the service which we might think is without value is precious to him. He sees it. That's wonderful. And also think about the pillar. The pillar is not moved. It is continually in the presence of the Lord, safe and secure. And it reminds us that the best life, the best place that we can be in this world is in the Lord's will obedient to him and so keep on looking to him and then the thing that blessed me above all else verse 12 the second part Jesus says that we will be owned by him I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write on him my new name you know, when we put our name on something, we're showing that it belongs to us. And that's so precious because the Lord Jesus says to this little church in Philadelphia, seeking to be faithful to him, that they will have these names inscribed upon them. Now, what do they mean? Well, they will bear God's name. That means they belong to him. They will find the name of God's city, the New Jerusalem, and that shows that they are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. But here it is, here's the jewel. They will find that Jesus himself will be unashamed to own them, and his own name will be written upon them and upon their lives, that new name of Jesus Christ, our risen, ascended Lord, the name above all names. That is so wonderful that Jesus will own us and say, I love them. They're mine. They're on my heart. Friends, we should want to be a Christ-centered church to serve faithfully, and we can rejoice to know that he owns us even when others dismiss us. And in the glory to come, he will show that in the most wonderful way that those who faithfully served him, even in a little cause like this at the end of the UK, belong to him and are about his glory. So be encouraged. As we press on, he sees. And what we do for his glory is not unnoticed by him. The devil tells us that our service means nothing, but that's not true. The master has his eye upon us and he exhorts us to press on. The need is great. There is much to be done. The door is open. And I pray that he would help us to be faithful in doing his work, his way, and to know nothing amongst us 
except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen.